0: This is the latest episode of uh, the Time Enough podcast with me, Ed Alderman. And joining me this week is uh, Alan Cope. Now, um, Alan and I first met a couple of weeks ago because uh, we were made aware of the fact that you, Alan, are uh, going to do an ab sale down Liverpool Anglican Cathedral quite soon. So, um, first off, welcome to the podcast and thank you for you.
1: Uh, thank you. Nice to be here.
0: And uh, well, as I said, you know, the, the, our introduction was was through this interview, and uh, let's start off talking just a little bit about uh, the reasons why you uh, you want to do this abseil down the Anglican Cathedral.
1: Yeah, well, the reason is quite simple. Uh, I first abseiled when I was thirteen years of age. Uh, the school was evacuated into Bude in Cornwall, and as a youngster. Uh, one of the teachers took us out and uh, hammered a big long nail into the ground put some rope round it threw it over the cliff showed us how to put the rope round our body and down uh, we went down the cliffs uh, no hard hat no safety line no nothing leg, rope through your leg round your body down your back and, uh, and down just gym shoes and we thoroughly enjoyed it
0: and, and at 90 years old it's still something that you want to, you want to do
1: well, it's, uh, I was told, well, three years ago, I went down the TT Tower for MS, uh, the charity, and I was told that the Royal Roy Castle Foundation was doing this Absal down Liverpool Cathedral. And I said, yes, I'll go for that. And of course, it is, these days it is safe because you have a harness with a safety line, so they do have hold of you. It's only the question it's 100 odd metres. Uh, and the thing is, look at your feet, which are horizontal to the ground, but don't look down.
0: You make it all sound very simple, very logical. And if you approach it in that logical way, then that removes a lot of the, the fear of something like that, doesn't it?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, and the Roy Castle, which some people may not know, uh, whilst he died uh, of lung cancer, he never ever smoked. It was doing g- g- gigs in pubs, uh, working beds, clubs, nightclubs that he inhaled the smoke. And the Royal Castle Foundation gives money mainly to find cures for the apparently there are a variety people of lung cancers which people could. Uh, get and they have succeeded in eliminating uh, some of the problems and hopefully in due course they'll be able to eliminate all the problems.
0: And your experience of Roy Castle goes back a long, long time. You mentioned that in the interview as well, seeing uh, uh, him, uh, the Royal Variety in 1958, was 58,
1: it? 58. yes, that's correct. I he mean, made he, quite an impression. He looked upon like you. a, a youngster, and he tapped dance. He played two or three instruments. He sang, and he actually brought the house down. He was the best heard.
0: What were you doing at the time? Then, so 1958, you would have been late late twenties, almost thirty Correct. years old. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. I had qualified uh, as a chartered accountant.
0: And you were based in in London. I was based day.
1: in London at that time. Yes.
0: What was it like in that period?
1: In that period, well, it was uh, shortly after the war. Uh, Oh, now you've got me thinking. Uh, I went into the RAF, did my national service before. Actually, I was one of the first uh, group of people who were allowed to qualify before they did their national service. So we went in, there were 12 of us that went in. I first volunteered for the Navy, but they were only taking permanent three-year minimum commissions. So then I opted for the Air Force. I thought I'd learn to be a pilot at the government's expense. Unfortunately, I suffer from hay fever, of which I'm suffering from actually at the
0: moment. It is really bad at the moment. I'm yeah. suffering too, yeah. Yes, I'm a bit
1: uh, chesty. And uh, so I was not uh, allowed to do that, uh, A4, G4 graded. And that's an interesting story actually at that time uh, because at the end of our square bashing in Padgate just outside Warrington the other 11 accountants went off to Norfolk for an accounts course and I was left at Padgate and I said, well, why aren't I there? And the answer was, well you're not fit enough to be uh, an officer so I said, why? So he said, well, because you're be grounded A4, G4 medical grading because of your hay fever and so I said well in my book if I'm not fit enough to be an officer I'm not fit enough to be an airman. I'm quite happy to do the two years but in these circumstances I'll have my discharge please
0: So you were so, discharged you didn't do no, service? No I was not discharged No you're not? No.
1: No the CO said he would look into it and the next day I was transferred to Stafford <laughs> Uh and give staff their due, I went through the same performance there. But they did put me in the accounts section, which dealt with the ins and outs of equipment. And it's a very large maintenance unit for the RAO. And I could see things that were coming in, uh, which really they were going straight out onto the auction site, uh, because they were now obsolete and I did a report into Air Ministry that I thought, well I first gave it to the WAF sergeant uh, who was in charge of a little section and she was more interested in doing the Daily Mirror crossword that she wasn't <laughs> doing anything else. And uh, I suggested that why aren't these orders canceled in advance? And she said, well if you like, you could do a paper, so which I did. And the long and short of it, was, it went up to Air Ministry, I got called to Air Ministry. And one reason or another, it was just put at the bottom of the pile. But nevertheless, they did send me to to join the others on the accounts course. And I thought, well, they'll give me that that chance, and then they will chop me. And then they say, well, it's not my fault you failed the exam. So while we worked for it, it wasn't really necessary. Because whilst there were about 40 people on the course, most of them were ex-pilots Uh, who got too old for flying. A lot of them couldn't change from piston planes to jet planes, but they were all on permanent commissions. Well, they joined the Air Force to fly. They didn't join the Air Force to become secretarial or accountant officers. So they didn't care. So out of the first, I think, 12 places, 10 of us were accountants.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, and and given your age at the time, then so you obviously you just missed having to to serve in the Second World War by a, a, about a year or two, correct? I suppose. So, yeah. what was the, the war experience like for you? Because I suppose you were a relatively old age, in that you would have been a preteen to teenage years in, in that time. So you would have had some experience of it, and possibly with not knowing how long the war was going to last. Potentially, with that prospect of going to fight looming over you as well? Well,
1: well going go, going back, uh, after Dunkirk, uh, which was May 19, the end of May 1940, it looked very much as if England was going to lose the war. In fact, quite honestly, I could vividly recall those days. Uh, my prep school, which was Dudwidge College Prep School, was evacuated to Cranbrook in Kent just. I think 10 to 15 miles from the coast, and so we saw people coming back, the injured, what have you, and uh, the at, the Germans could have sent a lifeboat of troops because we had nothing. They were uh, young men, old men were exercising with broomstick, broom handles and things. They had no rifles. However. They wanted to get the children out, and a lot of them were shipped out to Australia, Canada, wherever. And my father uh, was able to ask a friend in Los Angeles whether he would sponsor his wife and two children, uh, which they very kindly did. And so we went shipped out in uh, July 1940 uh, to the States. And that was, I had a very interesting experience out there, very interesting. I was the only boy in the whole school that wore short trousers. (laughs) (laughs) Because the Americans from day one are in long trousers, which was a bit embarrassing, but they accepted that. And uh, the one day going to school, I usually cycled, but it was raining, so I went to the bus stop. And uh, another lad, in the same form, who I hardly knew, said, would you like to share my umbrella? And we have been friends ever since.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. Is he still in Los Angeles then? He
1: is still in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, he couldn't come over. They were going to come to my 90th birthday party, but they couldn't come because he's undergoing cancer treatment, which regards every week going in to be given some drugs or chemotherapy of course so yeah interesting life I bet
0: so so there was I suppose from that stage but were you there for the remainder of the war then in no. no no
1: no we were only there uh, for two years for personal reasons we came back but one day I guess my the, tide, mother,
0: the tide was turning by that stage anyway, wasn't no, it? No, 1942, but no, it was not. Not so, good, no, no, not so good, no.
1: it was the height of the bloops, actually. Ah, so you but, came back uh, to that, yeah. Be that as it may, uh, one day when I came back from school, I asked my mother for some pocket money, and she said, I'd like to give you, but I haven't got enough to pay the electricity bill, because obviously she was just given an allowance by this family which they undertook a tremendous responsibility, which I realise now, obviously, as a child, you know, to take a a woman with two kids uh, more or less for life because they thought that England could have lost the war. However, be that as it may, and the next day at school, there was a man going round signing up children to sell newspapers and magazines. So I signed up to sell newspapers. And I came home in the evening. I said, it's okay, Bob you don't need to give me pocket money, I'm going to sell newspapers. And to this day, I can remember her standing, looking at me and saying, no father of yours would have had his son sell newspapers. And I said, well, Dad's not here and I need money. And I sold newspapers. And right next door to the apartment block was a garage. So I was there shouting one day, Roosevelt says this or the other. And a car drives up, the man pulls down his window, he leans out and he says, it's Roosevelt. <laughs> and I, being, what, 12 years of age, said, double O in England is ooh, it's Roosevelt. <laughs> and he said, you say Roosevelt, son, and I'll give you a quarter. I said, Roosevelt, hostess this? He gave me the quarter, drove off. I said, Roosevelt, <laughs> <laughs>
0: And so you came. We came back, back to in nineteen forty two in a period. Then it wasn't very good at all. No. Still, you see. and
1: then I went to Clifton College, which was in Bristol, but they had evacuated down to Beauty Cornwall, and that is where we went out with the master and went down the cliffs.
0: So, what was it like? Come the end of the war, then what? What, what was the? What was the atmosphere like what was the sense like both for you personally and and, and those around you, school friends and the like and, and the people that you knew what, what was that like
1: Oh it was oh uh, euphoric you know the, uh, because it was something which wasn't going to be uh, oh yes it, it was a good it was a good time uh, everybody was pulled together very much more so than today
0: just I, I guess a sense a real sense of relief yes things could definitely. i guess slowly slowly get back to to normal yeah. and so yes you ended up doing the, the national service in in the wake of of the war obviously and then and then take, taking yourself off to uh, to london how how did you end up on the isle of man then was well, that some years later
1: uh i came over here in winter of 1959 for a short break get away from london And I got involved in a business, thinking they could send the returns across to the UK and I could come periodically. I very soon learnt that if somebody wasn't here to sort the mess out, there'd be no business. So I stayed to do that, liked the way of life, and thought, well, you won't earn so much money as I would in London, but rather than smelling diesel fumes and cars and 25 minutes at least each way to go to work and back you could hear the birds in the morning and could smell the roses and that is why I think the Isle of Man is probably the finest place in the world in which to live
0: And this coming from someone who has travelled a lot as well, you've been to many many places for for various reasons and you have a real love of the the sea and sailing, don't you?
1: Uh, Yeah, I have a real love of the sea and sailing but what really I think started my travel experience was that in 1937 uh, my parents went to Switzerland for uh, Christmas time and that is where I learnt to ski and and in 1938 similarly and really skiing is my first sport Uh, also coming to sailing we uh, I was born in Beckenham in Kent And we were bombed out in the war, and my parents took over a place three miles upstream from Henley on the river, and right next door was a boathouse, so once again a kid of 12 goes in the boathouse. And that is where I learnt sailing, punting, and generally small boat handling.
0: And sailing has taken you from that river, taken you from Henley to many, many places. I believe you've sailed across the Atlantic, Yep. So you and your wife at the time?
1: Yes, yes, yes. We did that in nineteen, about 1978. Um, I was driving up the M1 one night from London to Northampton, and I had pulled up with warning hazard lights on because there had been an accident ahead, and a fella slides into to be at 80 miles an hour, and I got what the doctor called a broken back Fortunately, my lower spine was compressed and I was on my back for about three months with traction and uh, lying there, I have three children, at that time the youngest was 18, 18, 20, 22 and I thought, why go on a quarter of an inch one way or the other, I could have been paralysed or dead, so I liquidated most things and got myself a 40 foot boat Uh, put so much in for the boat, so much for investment because I had always had a dream of one day sailing across the Pacific to the pristine sands, the palm tree swaying, the girls in grass skirts and the idea was to see the world and so we set off. When I got down to northern Spain my business partner uh, died and I got landed with winding up his estate. And so I commuted. I was two years in the bed, commuted back to ride uh, the estate up, and then we went down through Madeira, the Canaries, twenty-three days across to Barbados, turned left, went down to uh, Tobago, Grenada, and all the way up the chain.
0: That's uh, that sounds incredible. What what's it like being out there, in the open sea, for? An extended period like that, just you and your wife, just and just you on that vessel, and no one else around.
1: Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> the crossing actually from the Canaries to Barbados was absolutely magnificent. The I put uh, two foresails out, wig a wig, genoa, and even went to bed at night. You had a constant force three, force four wind just taking you dead behind in the trade winds, warm nights the stars look like diamonds you could take them out, look at them and put them back in the firmament. the spray across the bow with the dolphins coming Uh, it's a magical experience
0: it sounds like it, I imagine it must give you that real sense of sort of scale of everything as well and you're kind of place with it, your, your very small place within it all, and the permanence of things around you as well
1: Oh yeah, it, it's, and you, I thought, you know you, you'd be bored uh, we had loads of books on board and tapes but, when you get up in the morning and you check your sails you do your navigation, you check the engine what have you uh, it's, and then you have breakfast, and then you do the washing up and clearing, it's nearly lunchtime and yeah. time just goes; it's incredible.
0: There's always something to be busying it's yourself exactly. with. I suppose again, with, with it being just the two of you as well, it's not like you could yeah. either of you could really take a back seat at any moment because there wasn't anyone else to be to be doing the, the work. And yeah, so,
1: because it was the days we have to remember, it was the days before uh, GPS or anything like that, and so you have to get used to using a sextant to try and find where you are. But by and large. If you have a cool head, I always kept one clock on Greenwich time and one on local time. Uh, You would know the direction you're going. You would know roughly how far you've gone. So if you have, and you can see when the sun is overhead, where you get the shortest shadow where you are, you know, that's midday. Then you could calculate roughly within two or three hundred square miles which is nothing when you consider how big the ocean is roughly where you are
0: and so you're using techniques really which have been used for hundreds of years beforehand you mentioning the sextant there as well exactly sort of the the techniques that we used in the golden age of discovery
1: once again you're you're really measuring the distance of the, the sun whether which side it is off the perpendicular where you are which gives you a very rough idea whether you're north or south of the equator if you like even uh, roughly where you are uh, position wise so you can you, you could even with as long as you knew what Greenwich time was and you know where the time where you are and you can see roughly you could work it out approximately where you are at least we have the advantage over Columbus <laughs> I, knew, I used to say to my wife If anything happens to me, don't worry. Just where the sun goes down, you follow. We know there is land from Canada to Cape Horn, so you're going to hit something. (laughs) And when you hit it, you say, "Where am I?" They say, "Brazil." You said, "Fine, that's where I was aiming for."
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you aimed for and got to the Caribbean. What was that like as an experience? So you, you've had this, you were talking about the Pacific before, but you'd obviously had this this impression of you know tropical island paradises, which is very much the case in the Caribbean as well. Did it meet up with your expectations when you got there? Uh,
1: yes, 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 to a large degree. I mean, okay, that, that was, a, uh, I knew what I would find. I did actually cross the Pacific. Uh. I... I Acted as crew to John Wormold when he was on our tour. It's they had 28 boats circling the road for two years, uh, Gibraltar to Gibraltar in two years, and wow. I joined him from the Atlantic side of Panama uh, to Tahiti.
0: Uh, so you got the Pacific experience it's, as well. Well, yeah,
1: we would have had it, but when the, in those days in the early 1980s. Coming up the Caribbean chain, the lot of it was scrubland, poor mot- poor natives, mediocre food, and few shops. And my wife, she liked arriving. She liked to see the places. She wasn't interested in the sailing side. And she's, when we got to the Virgin Islands, she said she didn't want to go across the Pacific because of what, not across the landing crossing, I said she thoroughly enjoyed but she said, why come across this with the poor natives, scrubland? Why sail 3,000 miles to the Marquesas? And she had a point, granted. And so we went up to the Bahamas and then into Florida and eventually up to Annapolis in Virginia. And, uh, yeah, well, I didn't want to... The worst question was we could have bought the boat back. In those days, you didn't need a 40-foot boat in the Isle of Man. A 28-footer yeah. is, is quite sufficient for weekend sailing or the odd week round the Scottish islands. And to take it in the Mediterranean, you could only once again sail in the summertime. And so the summertime is very nice here in the Isle of Man. And so we sold the boat in Annapolis. With hindsight, which is always a good thing, Of course. Uh, I should have kept it in Florida and then used it. There are 800 islands in the Bahamas. It's 80 miles from uh, Fort Lauderdale, Miami to the Bahamas. No distance at all.
0: That's on your doorstep, really, isn't uh, it? And
1: then you could have gone down there in the winter. Yes. However, be that as
0: it may, it didn't happen. It didn't happen, but uh, it's like you say, uh, you can still get the nice weather here, sometimes, at least. What was the Pacific... Experience like and sailing with a crew like that.
1: Uh, well, once again, it to me it wasn't so exciting, because when you arrived at a place, the organisers were there to meet you. They they showed you where your berth was. You had a list if you want to more gas, do this. They had runs to the supermarket. The idea of finding your own way is much more for me, at any rate. In earlier life, I had a wonderful experience during my accounting training. I was, just after I'd passed the intermediate, uh, I, was invi- I was invited or seconded to a firm of accountants in South Africa, and I spent the best part of a year out there. And during that time, the senior partner was doing a survey of a timber concession in the Belgium Congo and asked whether I'd like to go along as his clerk. And I said, fine, how do we travel? He said, well, we fly up with Belgium railways. They had a de Havilland dove, which they'd fly flew people around, and we come back the same way. So I said, well, would it be possible for me to come back overland? He said, yes, if you want to. And so at 20 years of age i came down from the center of the belgium congo as it then was all the way back to Johannesburg, and that was a fantastic experience and i think that really uh, gave me the thrill and the enjoyment of travel
0: that sense of adventure that it brings exactly because i suppose were you were you raised on those sort of those stories of colonial, you know, exploration and 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 heroism and, and that sort of thing?
1: Well, you know, well, one gets raised on uh, English history. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which,
0: you know, in, Which, in that Victorian period, you know, 50, 30 to 50 years before your birth was was where it was so much of it was taking place, wasn't it? So, exactly. so what what was that like at the time?
1: Oh, that, that was fantastic, because uh, you had to take a train from where we... It was really, if you took the Belgium-Congo as a circle, this little town was right in the centre of that circle. And so you had to take a train which stopped every 20 minutes to load with fuel, logs to go. You were going to go to this town. It only ran about once or maybe twice a week, maybe. what? It may get there on Tuesday or could be Wednesday. And then there may be a boat there to take you up the upper Lualaba, which is part of the Congo, upper reaches of the Congo River. Uh, That only runs once a fortnight. So, you know, and it was all ifs or buts, but uh, it worked. And the people were wonderful and everybody was smiling. And if you had £10,000 on you, you'd be quite safe. If you put it down and left it for an hour, I wouldn't guarantee you'd be there when you came back. But providing your own thing, if you're on the train, you could get up, leave things lying around. There would be nothing to it. And the food, the food on the train and on the boat was excellent. They probably couldn't eat uh, right properly. So if you wanted fish, they just drew a little fish. If you had soup, they drew a circle. If you wanted meat, they drew like the horns of a uh, horns. And then at the end they just see what they'd written on the paper tablecloth and that is what you paid for. You crossed over then into Northern Rhodesia as it was and you had the white linen and the cutlery and lousy food.
0: Because <laughs> it was still British at the time wasn't it? Oh yes. And of course, Northern yes, and Southern yes, Rhodesia. So it was before their independence. Before their independence. So yeah. you, you got to see some of that, uh, that period which was I suppose coming towards the end at that time, certainly over the next couple of decades. A lot of that started yep. to uh, to come to an end. So, y- yeah, I-, I can understand that. F- well, from what from the conversations that we've had, you do seem to have a real sense of adventure. So, you think it was it was that trip that instilled yep. that in you. Definitely. What about some of your other uh, your other travels? then where where else have you got off?
1: The- well, uh, both my boys are married American girls. the The older boy, Colin. Went on Camp America. Uh, you are nodding your head, so you've obviously heard of Camp I have America. Have friends that have done that. Yeah, sort they of come thing, across yeah. to Europe and take over 17, six, seventeen, eighteen-year-olds to work in endless summer holidays. They pay all expenses. Uh, you work for six weeks. They take you over for eight weeks. The last two weeks you c- can stay on camp if you want to all all your expenses paid there. But if you go off cab, it's down to yourself. And he met a girl, an American girl, when he went out on that, which clicked. And they've been married now for over 30 years. And they live in a concrete jungle called Dallas. And when his younger brother used to go out, they made up a foursome, and one of the foursomes clicked. And so they're both out there. And as they are, we and they had different uh, confirmations for their children, we were going to hire a, a motorhome, because I reckon that the time we flew back and flew out again, because if you go to one, you've got to go to the other. Of course. Uh, the cost would be balance itself out. And Cruise America said, knowing the length of time, well, why don't you buy use one of us? We do a deal. So I said, what's the deal? Well, you buy the one, uh, it's, and... After 12 months or 12,000 miles, we'll buy it back off you for 60% of what you paid. So I said, oh, that looks great. So we went for the deal, and we kept it for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) And we traveled through 46 of the lower 48 states. We've traveled across Canada two or three times, uh, out to Newfoundland, across to uh, Alaska on the other side, down to Mexico two or three times. And it's once again, it's the people you meet in these places.
0: Yes, it's what's always astonished me about the United States and and Canada is just the sheer scale of everything, the distances that you travel, and the, the gaps between communities at times, and just how that that changes people's perceptions of what a long distance is, of what a long time to travel is, and and it completely compared to somewhere like here is. Just completely on another scale, isn't it?
1: Oh, definitely. I, I mean, I, I can give you an example of that. The When I had the boat in Florida, we used to fly home periodically, of course, here. And one case, when I flew back, it was, I can't remember the name of the hurricane that went through Homestead, and obliterated Homestead, which is about 20 miles south of Miami. And uh, we were taking a Greyhound bus down to Marathon, where the boat had been docked, one of the islands in the middle of the chain. And sitting next to me, he got a chatting with, and he was a joiner from Maine, which is one of the northern states, and he was coming down to go to Homestead, having been a hurricane, to get a job. That's over 1,500 miles he was travelling, just on the hope that he would get a job as a joiner
0: so it wasn't even guaranteed no, just, no 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 wow. guaranteed
1: but Americans are like that they will go anywhere where there is work
0: yes yes the work ethic is the work ethic is, is incredible yes. there isn't it yeah yes um, so it sounds like you really enjoy
1: and that is what is really needed today I, I find it less and less the the work ethic people use their plastic card I mean I, I'm old old school if you can't afford it, you don't buy it. That's Simple. the
0: accountant in you speaking as well, well isn't it? I know, I it
1: was also even before plastics. Sure. That was how we were brought up. When I started life, if you like, as a small child, I was given threepence, three pennies old money. That was my pocket money.
0: <laughs> Period. Yes, of course. There yeah, was a much yeah.
1: stricter discipline. It was much harsher then.
0: Well, do you, do you ever think back, you know, because at 90 years old, you've, you've lived a long life and you've lived through a period that has seen such incredible change. I mean, does it, does it feel sometimes like it's been almost like more than, than one life or, or that you're looking back on someone else's? Or
1: uh, Yes, it, well, it obviously has been. I mean, the technology is so advanced. The human brain—I don't—I mean, as one says, and it is very true, get a kid of eleven to do your computer for you, because yeah. old funny duddies like me can't comprehend it. Uh, and, and years ago, while the Falklands was a strategic island, it—it it, it was a half a stop where the sailing boats came from Australia to refuel and provision or whatever have you before it took three months or something to get from australia to england yes. for a letter to get back yes and then three months going back for a reply nowadays you get an email and if you haven't answered it within three hours they say, you know <laughs> where are you why three score years and ten you're still cold meat <laughs> so what's the hurry
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: I mean, I get told off because I very, very seldom carry a mobile phone. They have their uses. But all day you walk down the street, what do you see? People with fingers.
0: And I suppose if you have spent the vast majority of your life without one and got by perfectly well without one, then you you haven't seen the need to... To adopt uh, one,
1: they, they are useful. I usually take one at night in case there's an emergency. If you're in business, they obviously have their use as well, but they're used far too much. And the information, as it's now transpiring, is not necessarily the truth which is propagated uh, through mobile phones, internet, and what have you. And I, I think we're running ahead of ourselves.
0: Yes, I wonder about that sometimes as well, whether or not uh, we as, as as people and whether or not our brains have actually really caught up with the technology yet. Yeah, so it's interesting that you, you you feel similar as as well in that respect. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 not too uh, too sure about it. It's almost as if if there is space, the space needs filling. You know, if there is space to talk about. Something, or if there's space to put news in, then they put the they put news in it, regardless of whether or not it's actually telling you anything new to any great extent. So, like for example, with twenty four hour news coverage, it's like you yep. can't just stop that when you you have to keep it rolling, don't you? You have to fill it with something. In your, it's almost like information overload, I think, for us at times. Exactly. And there's not, there's, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to start doing this podcast was to to just sit down and spend more time just, just talking to people without distraction and without all this other stuff flying around. I think that can feel quite overwhelming at times, can't it?
1: Yes, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you were talking about technology though but some things you do seem to be more keen on, like when you came up for your interview at Manx Radio a couple of weeks ago, I was very impressed to see you turn up in an electric car, in a BMW electric car, driving that. So there's yeah, certain, well, certain, technolo- certain technologies do appeal. Well,
1: yes, the, uh, it was interesting because, as I said, going back to my accident on the M1 motorway, uh, and when I recovered and I was going to go long distance sailing, I decided it was necessary to take a navigation course, which I'd never done in my life. I mean, I had a small boat in Ramsey Harbour, and I used to sail to Scotland. Well, I knew if I went due north, when I saw land the other side, I I'd turned but slightly to my right, I saw the hills, I wanted the, the second bump would take me to Whithold. And when I came back, I used to head for Jerby, because that's centre of the island. So if my Lannan's cloak came down, at least I would have a, a width to the point of air <laughs> without hit land. Whereas if I was aiming for the point of air and missed it, I would be in Hollyhead before I saw land. And, uh, yeah, and on this course, I got very friendly with a lad, or a, a man, who... Was in the, had been in the Army, and when he was in the Army, at 1776, the bicentenary in America, they put out a blurb that anybody wanted, they were putting a sailing craft, anybody wanted to go in. Well, this friend of mine, David, uh, he was in Remy, and he worked on tanks and heavy vehicles in Northern Ireland, and he put in, he thought he'd try this, and he put in for the mechanic. And they'd never had a mechanic in the army before reply, (laughs) And they thought, well, maybe this sounds good. Of course, everybody wanted to sail, didn't they? And so they took him, and he got hitched on that. And afterwards, he decided to go on a navigation course. Uh, And that is where I met him. And we're still friends since then. And he, when he left the army, went into the motor trade, generally, garage. He became warranty manager of Mercedes, actually, too. And he phoned me up one day, and he said, uh, why don't you change your car, get an electric one? I said, I don't need one. He said, your car's 11 years old. I said, no, it isn't. he said, go and look at your logbook. And it was. <laughs> and he said, I can get you the new BMW range extender. And I said, what in the hell is that? So he said, well, it runs on batteries, but it also has a petrol backup. It hasn't got an engine, but the petrol that you have, has, you have 10 litres, feeds the generator, which charges the batteries, which pushes the car. And we went into the logistics of it and the cost of it, and it was no more expensive than the previous BMW I had. And so we changed cars, and it is beautiful, absolutely beautiful.
0: They're very impressive-looking little uh, machines. What's it like to drive? Is it strange? No, going from no, it, it's
1: virtually a, a one-pedal car because as you take your foot off the accelerator, it slows down automatically, and if you judge it right, you never need to use, hardly ever use your brake. And uh, of course, you save the road tax. I pay five pounds a year road tax, which is because of the generator, uh, and I've been all over England with it. The charging stations. They need to update those and many more of them. But with the range extender, it automatically changes to your fuel when you, if your batteries run out. And that will give you another 60 miles of driving. Well, when you've done about 40, you go to the nearest garage and top it up again. In point of fact, in the bonnet, there's a big well of nothing. So I've got an extra five liters of fuel in that. Right. So it's belt and braces. And I've been all around England two or three times with it, without additional charging, just when the battery runs out, just go on to fuel. Is
0: it the future, as far as you're concerned? Is it the future of, of, of vehicles going oh, electric?
1: Oh, yeah. without a doubt. They're comfortable, they're silent, you don't have the fumes or the noise. Yes, and they're cheap to run. And also you get night tariff uh, if you have a home charger. You go on a night which comes down, I think, from 16p a kilowatt, 16p plus, to 9p plus. But either way, the I haven't noticed any real increase in the high electricity bill.
0: Going off at a, a bit of a tangent here, but it's, it's something that I wanted to speak to you about, was, um, I can't remember why this came up, but you mentioned it in passing when, when you came up to Manx Radio previously, that... Uh, and it's one of the stories that stuck with me, was that you were at Winston Churchill's funeral. Can you tell us a bit about how that came about and what it was like?
1: Yes. Uh, Well, I worked in London, just uh, a very short distance away from St Paul's Cathedral, and so I became a friend of St Paul's. But I was also a member of the Scrivener's Company, the Wishable Company of Scriveners, one of the city livery companies and uh, the registered receiver of St Paul's was also a fellow scribbler and we became friendly and it was through him that on the 30th of January and uh, 1965 no, uh, I was given a ticket to the funeral of Sir Winston Churchill.
0: At St Paul's obviously and uh, an occasion well one of the largest and i suppose most solemn occasions in britain for many many years probably certainly since the end of of the, of the war or certainly the death of the king in the 50s i imagine yep and what what was it what was the day like what was it like to be there
1: oh you had to oh well the interesting thing about that uh you had to be there 2 hours before um uh, i still do have uh the booklet of the timings for all parties the royal party and it's timed out to the minute when they will leave bucket of when they will arrive here when they will do this and so it all joins the various processions of the lord chancellor but they did have a problem because of the number of people uh, in the cathedral and the number of foreign royalty coming when they brought the coffin in and put it on the bill There was difficulty, it was going to be difficulty for the pallbearers to take it back off the beer where they have to turn right the way round with it. There wasn't sufficient space. And the cathedral came up with the brilliant idea of making the beer into a turntable. And whilst the public didn't know, there was a little man sitting under the beer for his sole job was at the end of the service to turn the little handle which would swing the coffin round in a circle.
0: Quite a, an interesting role to have on the uh, the day, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. um, what about the people that were there? What was, it, what was it like being amongst the great and the good of... Of oh, I, well, uh, that, uh, I was
1: in the South transept Gallery, actually overlooking the royal family. <laughs> and opposite the royal family were the other royals from the various countries as well. And then on the, well, t- to my left, uh, in the front row was the Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, with his cabinet. And George Brown, who was then the Foreign Secretary, said he wasn't going to attend the funeral. And really on the night what? before, Harold Wilson said to him, you will attend the funeral, because they did have the list where the usher had to alter all the seatings because they sit in prodigal, and he put it through gritted teeth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why had he not wanted to go? Was well, that where was he
1: was a staunch Republican uh, okay. uh, and everything else and didn't like Churchill or... What uh, politicians, are not much different from today.
0: <laughs> Still squabbling, but the sense of occasion must have been. Oh yeah! Huge. Oh, it was
1: brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I mean, they're the sort of things that one can never propagate.
0: Well, it's it's, it's living a real significant moment in history, but experiencing it through your own eyes, isn't it? Which yeah. must have. A...
1: Well, I, I have a i am a great traditionalist uh, and i do believe in that an englishman's word is his bond and i have said to more than one person in my life if your life a a person whose word is worthless so is the person
0: very very wise words there um let's look a little bit at at, at your life here and and some of the things that you've done here because um something that you mentioned the last time we chatted was about um your involvement with sheltered housing and i understand you you built or were involved in building the first sheltered housing complex in the Uh, isle of man
1: yeah well had i had a choice of a youngster i would have been an architect to be fair to my old man he gave me a choice you'll be a lawyer or an accountant And I didn't want to be a lawyer.
0: And there was no arguing in those days, I suppose. Oh, no. (laughs) no. You had that choice of one or the other, but that was it. That was it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, End of story. And you did as you were told. And in my day, if I didn't, you got a whacking. I mean, today they would call it child abuse, but when you're a child, you accept it. When you know no different.
0: It's a very different time as well.
1: And I think in some ways we've gone too far the other way today. I mean, with meals, with kids, they now get a menu. What would you like for dinner tonight? You know, we take it or leave it.
0: Yes, you given Simple. that. But uh, so coming down options, to that, yeah. when
1: I gave up sailing, uh, well, I, I said I didn't give it up, but when we came back and sold the boat in America, I knew I'm not one for playing five rounds of golf a week or doing the garden. And... I had, being a good socialist, I had a redistribution of weight. <laughs> and I had to get my trousers let out. And just under the hairpin bed was a Liverpool man who came from Liverpool, he had a tailor shop there, retired, he needed alterations. And it was a few years just after the and Investment Bank went bust, and Barrow Park, and all that lot. They'd started building, the builders went bust along with the same because they had loans from the bank. And I said to him, what's happening here? And he said, I think somebody's sniffing, but there's a field behind that, which was nine acres of ground, largest plot nearest to the centre of Ramsey, with planning permission for high-density development. And I looked at it, and I made the liquidators an offer, which they accepted. And uh, so I landed with that. And then it was a question what to do. I wasn't interested in building houses per se. I think even today, there's very little newness about them. They're nothing more than updated 1930s. You have one master bedroom on suite. Now, that's, you know, you're really good at that. Yes. Uh, but the other three bedrooms, whatever, one shared bathroom where you all have to go out the corridor or more. You go away on holiday. You get self odd suite accommodation. Why don't you have it in your own home? And I looked around and then found that you had well-heeled come-overs. One spouse dies. What happens to the other one? They either had to go into, they were then beginning to convert the Victorian boarding houses into apartments, right. and they had to go into one of those, or government-sponsored places. Well, I think government-sponsored places should be for the indigenous banks, not for the well-hilled come So I looked around sheltered housing in the UK, I looked when we went to the States, I looked around their senior citizen housing, and decided to build the sheltered housing accommodation. And we would be first Ballastole Gardens was before Saddle Mews.
0: And providing something, therefore, in the community that you, you thought was m- missing.
1: Yes, definitely. There was a where they could look. Uh, originally, I didn't even have garages there. I put because there were loads of parking. What happens if you have a garage? 90% I guarantee of people who have garages use it for storage <laughs> and the cars remain in the drive or in the road Yes. and I wanted people to look out onto grass and scenery not onto concrete cars but then one or two said oh I always put my car away in the winter and, or I go away on holiday I like my car new. so I applied for 20 garages we got 20 garages and they're occupied
0: and I think um, is it property is something that you've continued to be involved with on and off. I, I remember relatively recently there was the opening of some new accommodation in, in Ramsey, which I think you've yes, been involved uh, in.
1: Yes, well, I still had a, a little piece of ground abutting uh, Clobane Drive, on which we have now built uh, three places completed. And I built the last one just up to damp roof course, because all the planning permissions hopefully, that it would be of interest to a first-time buyer because they've got all the plans there.
0: And again, you think so that's something that's maybe lacking to an extent is the accommodation, properties for first-time buyers in well, particular? Well, they say it's
1: lacking, but uh, they also find that banks aren't necessarily lending the money. Yes. Even though they say they should or will to do when it comes down to it, uh, it doesn't happen.
0: Uh, As you've already alluded to, you're not really a man that uh, can sit still, are you? Like you said, you don't like five rounds of golf and and pottering in the garden. So you've been involved in other things, um, such as Sailing for the Disabled as well, a charity here in the Isle of Man. Yes. Which does great work for people with disabilities and and gets them out doing things.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, well, uh, once again, I've been there since 1999 and still quite active on the administration side of the charity.
0: What's it like going out on the boats? What, what, are, what are the journeys like, and how do the uh, the people respond to them?
1: Well, here, uh, we're sailing for the
0: disabled. What do you feel it does for people? Oh, they're wonderful,
1: wonderful. Uh, it, it, it's very good for team building, um, and the people with uh, disabilities I- enjoy it. Well, most of them enjoy it. Some of them don't. I mean, I've had instances where you see children which sit rigid all the time, and you think, "Well, this child won't come back." And then you hear from the parents, they thoroughly enjoyed it. When can they go out again? You know, you you can never tell. But it's a it's a very good it's a very good outlet, and help two kids. Or right. anybody with uh, disabilities
0: indeed it's for some yes they they really find a sense of enjoyment in it don't they? Yeah. and it's a very well supported charity the there's the relatively new vessel the pride of man three, three. is it now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've taken a little bit of a, of a back seat with the the charity these days have you
1: uh, definitely yeah at 90 years of age you know <laughs> You feel, you
0: feel like the time was... Is... I
1: think the time has come. Well, I gave up actually being a skipper when I turned 80 uh, because I voluntarily did that, not for fear of being incompetent, but can you, I can remember what happened to Jimmy Lomas, the architect of Summerland, uh, when, the, when the fire happened there. He was in the Mediterranean, and newspapers said architect... It's cruising in a Mediterranean while 49 people die in a fire. I mean, it, it, was, it actually it broke him broke him completely. And it wasn't his fault. No. He took the, all the materials to the fire department and what have you, and they were past what were being used. So, I mean, but there it is. And I thought the same. If an accident had happened with the boat, what is an 80 year old doing in charge of disabled people?
0: So even though, so I'll go as mate, but not as skipper. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's understandable. So, as you've as you've got older, then have you found that you've needed to strike that balance between you? Obviously, still want to be active and do as much as possible, but you come to a realization that there are some things that you can't or should no longer do.
1: Yes. Yeah, uh, my partner, Marion Wolland, who was the fundraiser for Sailing Disabled and collected the money really for the ongoing boats which they've had, uh, she, she, I believe, would like me to put my slippers up watch television all day, but I'm very sorry I don't do that.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, so you have you have to strike this balance a little bit more these days and, and sometimes realise... Well, things are
1: slower, that... Understand, understandably, but as long as I'm active, I'll keep going. I'll retire when the
0: good Lord decides to take me. When you expire, exactly. You'll retire when you expire. Expire, Yeah, good. (laughs) Because that was something that struck me when um, when we did our interview. You know, when you said that sort of life is for living and every day is a gift. Is that is that how you've always felt?
1: Yeah. Oh yes. My great uncle founded an old people's home in the, I think, late 1920s, early 1930s. And therefore, from a child, I've always been brought up in that environment um, and have always cared while well, I was uh, on the house and investigation committee in later life on the home. And I've always felt that way. Uh, you know, it is good to be... Alive. It is good to enjoy every day. I, I say I'm going to live to 125. I hear people say, "Oh, I've got this ache or that ache." I don't know how much longer I've got. I think it's telling the brain to close down. Every day is an adventure. Every day is a special day to be.
0: Well, I think that's an attitude which really, really does help. It's like if you feel young if you feel good if you feel fit as in if you tell yourself these things you're pointing to your head there so very much that mind over matter exactly but to retain that i think is 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 something that's impressive so impressive to Mm. to 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 your age um i've often wondered about that whether you know how much things are, are chicken and egg as one ages and once you start to once things start to break down a little bit, if you let that then become a bigger thing, and te- like you say, tell yourself that you can't do things anymore, or then, that, you, won't do then them. you won't do them. So it's about having that, that opposite mindset as far as you're concerned, is it?
1: Well, I'll tell you one quick interesting little story. Years ago when I was a teenager coming home late one night, getting, going towards the car, a tramp comes up to me, says give me a power governor, I said, if I give you a pound, you'll only drink it. He said, no, Governor, I don't drink. He said, well, you'll only smoke it. He said, no, Governor, I don't smoke. I said, well, you'll find some woman to go with He said, no, Governor, I don't. I said, well, get in the car. I want to take you home and show my parents what happens to a man who doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, and doesn't go with women. <laughs>
0: now, we've just spoken about this a little bit, Alan, but before... Um before we finish the podcast, what I've always asked my uh, guests is uh, what, have, what have they learnt during their, their time on this earth? If there was one piece of advice that you were to give to someone, what would it be? I imagine, would it be along the lines of what you've already said about just living life to the full in that every day is uh, always,
1: always remember the say, I was walking along the street for I had no shoes until I saw a man. Who had no feet. And if you realize there are always people worse off than you, be thankful for what you have got.
0: And that's your...
1: Yeah, but today there is too much greed and selfishness around. I want, I must have. Do you really need it? One's needs and one's wants are two completely different things.
0: I hope. Thank you very much for joining us on it's Time Enough. It's been a Enough. pleasure. Thank you.